This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The Federal Reserve last week announced that it is going to be patient about interest rates and hold off raising them for now. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell attributed the temporary halt to issues like trade tensions, Brexit, and the impact of the partial government shutdown as creating economic uncertainties. In the last few months, President Trump has openly criticized Mr. Powell for and the Fed for raising rates and, in Trump's opinion, slowing down economic growth. But in making his announcement, Mr. Powell said, quote, we're never going to take political considerations into account or discuss them as part of our work, end quote. With more on the Fed's decision and what it means for consumers, we're joined here in studio by uh, Peter Conti-Brown, who is uh, Assistant Professor of uh, Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at the Wharton School. And also joining us on the phone is Rodney Ramsharan, who is an Associate Professor of Finance and Business Ethics at the University of Southern California. He also served as First Chief of the Semantic Financial Institutions and Market Section with the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve. Peter, great to see you again. Always a pleasure. Rodney, great to have you back with us. Thank you, sir. Same here. Thank you. So in this economy right now, the idea of not raising rates means what, Peter? Well, I think the it means a heavily empirical Federal Reserve, I think. And that's that's something to take very seriously. We could have substituted that adjective empirical for a variety of other things that would also fit the narrative. A heavily, a heavily political Federal Reserve, for example. In other words, the last six months or so of uh, President Trump's uh, cage rattling at the Fed seems to have been effective in causing the Fed to reverse its course. That's a narrative that people can tell, but I don't think it's an accurate one. I think what the Fed has done uh, is there are a couple of voices on the Federal Open Market Committee that have been banging this drum for uh, a long time, and the pause is saying, well, the the world of uncertainty continues to swirl around us, right. and our concerns both on you know topside inflation concerns, but also in our haste toward rate normalization, can overdo things in a world of great instability. Now, interestingly enough, the factors that uh, that Powell identified are themselves political economic. Sure, yeah. Brexit, trade concerns, government shutdown. Right. It's not just about uh, about other uh, broader. Trends, but he's aware of those too. Things like secular stagnation, things like the durability of the Phillips curve, which put inflation and unemployment in conversation with each other. So, what I take from this is actually pretty reassuring that the Fed, the Federal Open Market Committee, generally is trying to go slow and understand a changing world as it changes before them. Rodney, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a very good way to think about it. I think the Fed is, is operating in a world of tremendous uncertainty. And the dictum in such a case is you want to go as slow as you can and wait and get the data. It's a little bit of a paradox that the president has attacked the Fed. And by attacking the Fed, he, in fact, makes it more difficult. He makes their job more difficult. And it's a bit of a paradox in the sense that he forces them to do things that would go against his own interest. So in the sense that if the Fed is perceived to be acquiescing to the political pressures from from the White House, it in fact changes inflation expectations and can lead to more inflation, which can then prompt the Fed to be forced to raise interest rates at a faster pace. Uh, What they have done instead, i.e. what the Fed has done instead, and I think quite wisely, is they've looked at the situation in China where uh, the Chinese growth rate is slowing for the first time in a long time. 
in the EU as well. Uh, I think uh, last quarter the German growth rate slowed quite sharply as well. Our stock market is highly uncertain and fluctuates a great deal, and the situation in trade is deeply problematic. And why trade is problematic is because any movement in tariffs, if you increase it, it's going to increase inflation in the United States. And that, again, makes the Fed's job very difficult. So what they've done is they've said, given all of this uncertainty on the international front and on the inflation front, uh, let's wait and we've raised rates about two percentage points, two, two, two and a quarter points. Let's uh, pause at this point and see right. you know, how, this takes, how, how this takes hold. And I think that's the wisest way to think about it. And what's interesting, Rodney, is that when you look at the, these couple of examples, uh, not that it's a certainty, but the potential uh, of some of these events playing out and being solved one way or the other has the opportunity to be there in the relatively near future. I mean, obviously, the idea of a of a, of a potential another government shutdown, we know we're, you know, within uh, two weeks of that either happening or not happening. We know that, you know, Brexit, you know, you have the March 29th deadline, and we know that something is going to happen one way or the other at that point, And the expectation is kind of the same with the trade as well. Yes, and, and the fact that inflation sort of stays below the 2% threshold means that the Fed has the luxury, if that's the right word, to sort of wait and sit out the uncertainty because there's no reason to necessarily jump in and act at this point. Uh, if, however, and this is the big thing, is if inflation expectations, if realized inflation uh, comes up above the threshold that they've set, the 2% threshold, then even if or when, you want to phrase it carefully here, but if the uncertainty continues to persist, the Fed may have a lot less room to, to, to wait. It may have to act uh, to forestall uh, a rise in, 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 in the inflation rate if that takes place, if it goes above the threshold. Peter? Yeah, nothing, nothing really to add there, except that this error term on the uncertainty, right? When, or, or put it slightly differently, the the coefficient in front of some of these likelihoods is so large, and there's so much uncertainty that it'll, it'll be interesting to see how markets and how the Fed, either one one following the other or working uh, in in parallel respond to these binary outcomes. In other words, I don't think that we're seeing uh, a, a great ideological or epistemological change, regime change at the Fed with this uh, this last announcement. I think we're in very much a wait-and-see, meeting-by-meeting uh, uh, approach. And, and we've talked w- with you, Peter, about Jerome Powell and his leadership of the Federal Reserve making this move at, with all of the kind of factors that are at play here. But I, I think it also says something about him as a leader of the Federal Reserve and the path that he believes that the, the Fed should be taking in this particular kind of scope that we are in right now with the U.S. economy. And we've obviously made the run up over the last you know several months in terms of interest rates, but we don't have to do it overboard at times. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the the job of the Fed chairman is one of the most interesting, perhaps unique within the federal government because it's a leadership role in a variety of ways. It's been called the chief economist of the United States, you know, chief justice of the United States or something like it. But in fact, uh, the Fed chair has to be a great politician as well, yeah. has to be a great manager, has to be a great uh, intellectual in a sense. And there's something else that's happening right now that I think is 
um, is accelerating. It started with uh, with Bernanke and has increased under uh, under Yellen and and Powell, and that is the prominence to each member of the Federal Open Market Committee, the willingness of these members to you know get on CNBC to write op eds in the sure. Wall Street Journal to make their voices heard, even and especially when those voices represent something very different from you know an emerging consensus. I'm thinking of people like. St. Louis Fed President James Bullard or Neil Kashkari at Minneapolis, many others who are being transparent about what they view as their responsibility, which is to act as a principal, not simply as members of com- the committee. And so Jay Powell is riding that herd. He's trying to manage those ideas. And so far, he's doing a very effective job at keeping the Fed uh, more or less coalesced around a, a, a single vision. Part of that, I, I'm guessing, is because of the availability of media that we have for these these Fed governors to to be able to voice this opinion. But from a historical perspective, how new is this particular mindset for these Fed governors to come out and and make these particular statements? It's new. I mean, I, can, I looked at this both quantitatively and qualitatively. Quantitatively, I've I've measured uh, just how much uh, each class of FOMC participants speak in meetings. So by that, I mean the Fed chair, the governors, the voting presidents of the reserve banks, the non-voting presidents. And we're seeing much greater participation from non-voting presidents in those meetings. Um, Whether that means they have greater influence or not is an open question, but they're definitely more active. Um, And that's that's new. That's a departure from a right around the financial crisis. Um, and we're also seeing, uh, you know, much greater public engagement. But these opportunities would have been available in the past, but there wasn't a p- public curiosity about them. Sure. You know, people, there was a joke in the in the '60s that there was a new governor of the Federal Reserve, and he went home to brag about it. And they said, "Oh, is that, are you in charge of the nation's forests?" <laughs> right? No one, under, no one. People don't right. quite know what the Federal Reserve does, but they know it's money, not trees. And so that's a big difference, and that's a bigger platform for people who are. Uh, "Quote unquote, mere governor." Rodney, how do you see the the role that that Jay Powell has taken? So I, I think that Peter has made a, a wonderful point. I think uh, beginning under the Bernanke Fed, there has been a tremendous increase in the transparency in the way the Fed operates. And I'll give you a very concrete example of this. Under the Greenspan Fed, uh, prior to 1994, the FOMC meetings where interest rates are announced or changed. There was no formal announcement as to what the interest rate policy was, and markets had to infer uh, what the interest rate target was based on the operations of the New York Fed. So uh, that's a startling fact that, again, prior to 1994, there was no way for markets to really understand what the Fed was doing. And it was a deliberate policy on the part of Greenspan to be as opaque as possible I guess to give him the discretion and the operating flexibility that he thought uh, was key. Under the Bernanke Fed, you know, we got to things like press conferences and a discussion about what was going on, an attempt to educate the public about the intricacies of the policies, about QE and so forth and so on. And you could view Jay Powell as a continuation of that trend, of that pattern of trying to communicate broadly to the public this idea that the central bank is important and it's a legitimate institution insofar as the public understands what it does. So me, I, I think that's the big theme. Rodney, let me ask you this then, playing off of something you just said. If we don't have the recession that we had a decade ago, do you think we're still going down that path? Or is there 
a, a tad more secrecy about what was going on. Um, I, I think the recession and some of the actions that the Fed undertook, things like QE, I think the central bank and the chairman at that point felt that it was, was very necessary to talk to the public to explain you know, the gravity of, of the situation and why those actions were justified, because those were deeply well, very unprecedented, and that's an, uh, a weird term, but it was right. unprecedented to, in fact, step in and buy bonds and buy all the things that the Fed did. And if, if, you, if, if you recall, when TARP was uh, voted in Congress the first time and TARP was the Treasury stepping in to inject equity in, into the banks, Congress voted against TARP. And it took the Fed chairman and the Treasury secretary to go to Congress and to go to the people and explain why this was necessary. So I think it came you know, a little bit from the thinking that the then Fed chair had about the importance of, of transparency. But I think it also came about because of the severity of, of the situation itself. Peter, your thoughts? When we look at what consists of the Fed's toolkit in in 2008 versus today, um, it's interesting. Even after Dodd-Frank, not a whole lot has changed. That might be a provocative statement. Certainly some Fed insiders would not agree with that. Emergency lending, for example, was changed under Dodd-Frank. I take the view that it hasn't been changed sufficiently uh, to severely limit the Fed's response. But what has changed, as Rodney said, and this is a revolution, uh, it started as a quiet revolution in the 90s and early 2000s, to use Alan Blinder's term, a former Fed vice chairman, and now has been a quite noisy revolution. And that is trying to figure out how to be loud and clear mm-hmm. about their, uh, their policy actions. And this has both a monetary policy side and a democratic legitimacy side. And you might think that this you know, transparency is a good thing on both sides, right, and both from a policy perspective and, and a legitimacy perspective. I don't think that's an unmitigated truth. I think transparency is a very tricky knife that the Fed is using, and it can you know, cut your food or it can cut your arm, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I think what the Fed is going – we're in a period in this revolution of experimentation. How much transparency is too much? How much mm-hmm. is – is Jay Powell standing up and saying, uh, you know what, we're our basic premises of – Central banking that have held uh, that have guided us for fifty years are now uh, under reevaluation. Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Even if it's an honest thing. In other words, if the Fed and central banks generally are part, at least partially constructed to be wizards of Oz, right? Yeah. Draw the curtain behind this technocratic and value laden set of exercises because the public simply will not be able to contribute much if you do this too too openly. Um, then how do we make sure that that curtain is shut enough but also open enough to accomplish its goals? Well, Rodney, when you think about it, this this move obviously is getting a lot of uh, publicity, not only because of the media interest in it in general, but realistically there are some some real basic core elements that, that could come into play for the average consumer here. You're talking about the potential of, of impact on, on various types of loans that people may be going for with car loans, home loans, refinancing and such. And more and more people are, are more aware of the elements of this now than I think ever before. Yeah, I, I think you've made a, a wonderful point and a, a great way to connect it back to what folks actually do. And and there is a lot of data and studies that now show that 
uh, when the Fed acts on the FOMC date or, or those dates, uh, that tends to have a big, in, a big impact on the mortgage rate that people pay for their home loans, a big impact on car rates and so forth. Uh, so the actions of the Fed are, are very consequential. I think a wonderful point, again, that Peter has made is that we don't know the optimal amount of transparency. So a way to phrase this is that, indeed, if Jay Powell and the FRMC can sort of articulate what its plans are, then that helps you and I, the regular person, to plan our, our lives. We can sort of have a reasonable forecast of our mortgage rate, our interest rates on our car loans, and so forth. But as they become more and more transparent, we may not be able to process or understand the information. And in fact, you get a paradox where it creates more uncertainty. They give us more information that we know less, and so we become more and more uncertain. And that, in fact, has a negative impact on our ability to plan. So it's a, it's a grand experiment where central banks are now trying to communicate things so that consumers can better act and that the information is available to everybody and not just to Wall Street. But at the same time, the risk is if we can't understand uh, what they're saying, then it doesn't help us a great deal. Peter? I agree. Not <laughs> much to add there. I think one, one angle that we haven't covered yet that is fascinating is remember that the Federal Reserve consists of people, right? Sure. Right? Yeah. It's, it's economic models, to be sure. There's an awful lot of theory off lot that is very technical, but these are people at bottom. And the principal lever that the president has, that he should have, and that he uses, and every president uses, to shape Fed policy is his appointment power. Sure. I, yeah. am, I, am, I, I agree completely with Rodney. If I were advising President Trump exclusively as to his interests, I would say, knock it off on Twitter about the Fed. It will only hurt you, confuse markets, nothing good comes of it. Yeah. Um, but if I were advising President Trump exclusively as to his interests, I would say, and take a much keener interest in the people you appoint at the Fed. Now, these, these have been very high-quality appointments, but uh, we're getting some pretty funky signals coming out of the White House <laughs> and, on this front. As you and, and I were talking about before we went on the air, uh, there are two spots that still need to be filled. And, and last week he mentioned one of them, potentially Herman Cain, which I think caught a, a lot of people off guard. You had mentioned to me that, that he has a little bit of a background in uh, where the Fed is concerned, but certainly not for the position that, that he is being discussed for. If you'd locked me into a room for a week and said, name all the potential candidates for the Fed, I don't think I would have come up with Herman Cain. Um, <laughs> he does, he, you know, he was a member of the board of the Kansas City Fed um, for a few years and eventually rotated into the chairmanship of that board. This is a, uh, except when choosing the, the Reserve Bank presidents, this is largely a ceremonial role. They yeah. have meetings monthly. They can give their thoughts on... You know how managing Godfather's Pizza affects their thinking. That's not irrelevant to monetary policy, not at all. Um, and I should say it's a very good to have ideological and background professional diversity on uh, on the Fed's Board of Governors. So having a former business executive is a, is a healthy thing. Um, but what you fear in an appointment context like this is cronyism. So you fear people whose sure. lack of expertise will be made up for by affinity with the president so that they're taking their cues not from what they know about the uncertainties of the world, but how it will look when it's read uh, in the Oval Office. 
And I don't know enough about Herman Cain and Donald Trump to know whether that would be this would be more of a cronyism type move or, or, or not. But it's enough to make me nervous. But that was, uh, I think, Ronnie, one of the potential concerns that I think many people have had uh, with the the approach that the president has taken towards the Federal Reserve and the comments that he has made about the, the decisions in the last uh, 18 months uh, on interest rate increases. So, you know, should there be potentially some concern if. Herman Cain is, uh, you know, is moved into a position in the in the Fed uh, that maybe he is to a degree a, a mouthpiece for the president. Yeah, I still, I I think we've we've gone down this road um, uh, in in the last you know twenty five to fifty years. Um, a good way to think about the Fed is it's you know think of yourself as going to have surgery and you know you want to have some it's a very technocratic job and you want to have somebody who is highly skilled uh, understands the body and and that person should be unbiased and a careful thinker and you wouldn't even for a moment think that you would go get some regular pizza guy to do your surgery, right? And <laughs> right. so the same principle applies with the Fed, that these are highly technical, very specialized jobs. It's very important to have a diverse range of views, of course, but the core competencies need to be there. And why I say this is not new is that we've experimented uh, in Arthur Burns' days in the 1970s. Uh, we knew that the White House was putting a lot of pressure on, on the Fed uh, to not raise rates, and that led to a lot of inflation. And that's a theme that we've seen throughout the world, that when central banks are not independent, when central banks cannot act in a manner that's consistent with the objectives alone and not the politics, uh, things tend to go badly. And so beginning in the late 70s, across the world, not just in the United States, uh, uh, central banks and governments recognize that we need to act to make central banks as independent as, as possible. And Jimmy Carter, to his credit, you know, put Paul Volcker on, on the Federal Reserve, and he acted independently uh, against the interest of Carter uh, to, get it, to get the inflation rate down. And that's been the precedent that, uh, that we have, that you put the right person in power and let them act in accordance with the objectives of the institution, then we all, yeah. as a society, get the best outcomes. And, and I'm just watching the, the last several months. I think Jay Powell is the right person, at least for right now. And yet not a surgeon, right? In, right, uh, right. Rodney's <laughs> metaphor. Right. Um, I, I would probably I, I'd add a friendly amendment to Rodney's metaphor. I'd say it's not surgery so much as it's medical care, maybe even end-of-life medical care. Where you want not just people who are going to say, I absolutely have the skills to cut or to reconstruct a joint in this way. Right. And I got it over these years and years of training. I've done this 10,000 times or whatever. But it's some of the very technical work here is value laden. Right. How much are you willing to suffer in order to accomplish this goal versus that goal? Right. Here are the range of outcomes we might expect. And there I think having... Uh, professional diversity is a healthy thing. J. Powell is a good example of that, you know, as was uh, Alan Greenspan, who, although billed as an academic, he wasn't one. He got his PhD essentially as an honorary degree uh, in his mid-50s, um, but was is uh, widely hailed, at least on the monetary side, if not the regulatory side, as a very effective central banker. So I think that independence is not a binary category. Um, that we're, when we think about independence, we have to recognize that the Fed is a political institution 
that operates within a political system. Sure. And yeah. the question is how much or how well do we insulate its policymaking, including where it is value laden from uh, the brass knuckles of partisan politics. That we want to do. But we shouldn't pretend that we can seal it off from any kinds of those influences or that it's purely surgery or, or sending a satellite into space no, or something because, like that. Because, as you said, there is an element of politics that will be around the Fed, no matter who the Fed chair is, who the president is, who the board of governors are. And that's been that way since the Fed, since even before the legislation was passed right. in December, December 1913. Great having you both with us today. Peter, great seeing you. Thanks great for coming you. in. Rodney, thank you for your time on the phone today. Thank you, sir. Of course. Thank Indeed. you. Indeed. Thank you. Peter Connie Brown uh, from here at the Wharton School. Rodney Ramsharan uh, from the University of Southern California. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.